Uh, good morning once again. It's a privilege to be standing before you here this morning in the house of God and to be reflecting with you again on these incredible and these beautiful teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to be here this morning uh, with our brothers and sisters. We'd like to give a warm welcome to all of you around the world watching online on your devices in your homes, hopefully not while you're driving, uh, but it's a privilege to welcome you here today. And uh, today we're going to be looking at two more of the Beatitudes of Jesus. Uh, the first is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And uh, the second is, blessed are the uh, peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. These are beautiful Beatitudes of Jesus. They're pregnant with meaning. And uh, so uh, before we open the Word of God, I invite you to bow your heads with me and we ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts. So shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that we be humble and teachable. I ask that uh, there be less of us at the end of this hour and more of Jesus in our lives. Father, as we see this world unraveling, I pray that we indeed can build our lives and our characters upon the rock of Jesus and his teachings. So speak to each of our hearts now, Father. Mold us and shape us, break us and convict us. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So the first of these Beatitudes is found in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in verse, um, where does the pure in heart? In verse 8. And uh, you see it there upon the screen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we may ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean by the pure in heart? And what does it mean to, to see God? Well, actually, Jesus is drawing this teaching from a very well-known psalm. It's Psalm 24. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the 24th Psalm, and we will see there where Jesus is taking this teaching from. Uh, this psalm here, um, verses 3 through 6, uh, we're going to be looking um, at these verses here this morning. Remember the other day when we talked about, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, well, Jesus was drawing upon Psalm 24 and verse 1, which says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And we have the attitude, yes, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, but this bit of land with a white picket fence around it, this is mine. And so, in this beatitude, Jesus is continuing his exposition of this psalm in Psalm 24, and we're going to pick it up in verses 3 through 6, and this is what it says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, and who do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And within these, um, these three verses of Psalm 24, we have the essence of what Jesus then summarizes in this beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, that is included in, in this uh, psalm, those who have clean hands and pure hearts, and for they shall see God, says Jesus, and at the end of that, uh, that verse 6, it says, they will seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so Jesus is really expounding once again one of these psalms of David. And this psalm was a psalm that was sung when people entered the temple of Jerusalem. It is a psalm that, is, that, refl that ref relates to when we're actively coming into the presence of God. Now, when we talk about clean hands and clean hearts, in Jesus' time, uh, the rabbis focused primarily on the question of external ritual cleanliness and purity. The Mishnah, 
and covers, includes an entire division on the topic of cleanliness. It's called Tohoroth, which means cleanliness, and that includes nearly 200 pages divided into 11 chapters or tractates, as they're called. And these cover such topics as cleanliness of, of, your, of your cooking vessels, cleanliness of your clothing, and a cleanliness of your uh, accommodation. But crucially, this chapter of the Mishnah does not say anything about cleanliness of the heart. The rabbis focused on external cleanliness. Why do your disciples eat food without washing their hands? That's a question that every parent asks their child. Why do you eat this food without washing your hands? And during this COVID pandemic, uh, my, my daughter, every time I walk home, she says, Dad, why didn't you wash your hands? Well, I've just literally walked in the door. I have to walk three meters to the sink. But she's caught me in that moment. Dad, why haven't you washed your hands? Now, the rabbis focused on external cleanliness, and they argued that there were three levels of ceremonial cleanliness, and the hands were on the second or the third level, but nowhere do they discuss cleanliness of the heart. Jesus is not critical of these ceremonial laws per se in this beatitude, but he is asking us to focus not on external cleanliness so much as on purity of the heart. In Hebrew thinking, the heart was not just the center of one's feelings, but it constituted the entire reality of our inner life, including our thoughts, our emotions, and our conscious will. So to be pure in heart, we might say from a Jewish perspective, means to be so undivided internally before God and His will that this manifests in a, trans in a transparency in our dealings with others, that we reflect God's love and His character and His will to those around us. Now, if you turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, because that is where this beatitude is found, um, Jesus repeatedly connects in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he repeatedly connects the issue of the heart and the eyes. And, and so G Jesus links the heart and the eyes that as what comes in the eyes affects the heart and so forth. And what our heart desires is where it directs our eyes to, to look at. So, for instance, in Matthew 6, 22 and 23, you want to maybe turn there in your Bibles, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And Jesus says here that our eye, our physical eye, you might say our spiritual eye, or at a deep level, our spiritual taste buds, they're either good and sound. They're either simple or they're evil. They are divided in their attention or they are focused on God himself. We've already seen in Matthew's, in his Beatitudes, that the just are those who are pure, poor in spirit and those who they are who tremble at the word of God, who come to God with empty hearts, with empty hands, that is. They do not come to God on the basis of their own self-sufficiency. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus connects the eyes and the heart once again. Uh, we see there, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. And how can we know where our hearts truly are? Well, it's what, where we spend our time. And uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21. He, say, he talks about do not store up for yourself treasures on heaven, where, on earth where thieves break in and steal and moth does corrupt and destroy. But then he concludes that little passage by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart or your cardia will be also. 
And so Jesus discusses in a number of places throughout the Gospel of Matthew, in there are five major sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, he discusses repeatedly the question of the human heart and the influence of the eyes and what goes into our, through our eyes and how it affects the human heart. Yet, as we ascend the hill of the Lord, as the psalmist might say, because the psalmist said, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? As we ascend the hill of the Lord, or as we seek to draw closer to our Heavenly Father, Jesus discusses um, at least four different experiences of the heart within the Sermon on the Mount that can actually be cause a cause of stumbling that may prevent us from reaching the presence of God Himself. And I want to just dwell on those four conditions of the heart that are, that are, uh, that are not recommended by Jesus, because Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But then He discusses a number of other conditions of the heart that, that really um, trouble many people today, and it's an invitation for us to reflect on whether we experience these heart conditions ourselves. Now, the first condition of the heart that Jesus discusses is the occupied look. Now, I want to preface this discussion about uh, water, which we're going to come to in a moment, by saying that uh, in, in John chapter, where is it? John chapter 8, John chapter 7, verses 38, 38, and if you want to turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 7, my apologies, John chapter 7, Jesus says there, in verse 37, John 7, 37, on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus is affirming his divinity in this chapter of John, and so the question of the psalmist, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, or who may come into the presence of God, is also a question, who may come into the presence of Jesus? And Jesus talks about coming to him as seeking living water. And uh, when we come to Jesus, then the, the, the presence of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit flows out of the believer's heart um, as a stream of living water. So there's this question about the purity of heart and streams of living water that come out of our hearts. So Jesus discusses in the Sermon on the Mount four conditions of the heart, heart conditions, you might say, that actually prevent us from coming into the presence of God. And the first of those is the occupied heart. I turn back to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount there, and we see there that Jesus discusses from verse 25 through 31 the occupied heart. He says, Therefore I tell you, Matthew 6, 25, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what will we drink, or what shall we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then this is the, the conclusion. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. So let me illustrate uh, by using some water here. Here's a, an empty cup. 
And here's some fresh drinking water. And Jesus teaches in the Gospels that um, out of the believer's heart, the Holy Spirit pours forth like a stream of living water. It's life-giving, isn't it? It's delicious to the taste. The problem is, is that some people have a heart condition known as the occupied heart. And uh, I have here some crown cinnamon. I stole it from my wife's kitchen this morning. She doesn't know, so, but this is all on the record, so everything I do will be taken down and used in evidence. Here's some cayenne pepper. Is cayenne pepper good? Absolutely. It's great for putting with egg on your lettuces so the rabbits don't eat them. And here we have some, so we have some cinnamon, we have some cayenne pepper, and then we have some garlic powder. Now, each of these things, each of these things is intrinsically good. Would you agree? Well, theoretically, we have some garlic powder, okay? I'm going to pour it in here, all right? So you've seen there is some garlic powder in here. And... Um, the point about this, let me put these back in here. The point about this is that Jesus intends for our hearts to be filled with living water, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can add lots of good things to our lives. Pepper is not good. Pepper is not bad. Um, cinnamon is a good thing. These are all nice things. But the problem is when our life becomes filled with these good things, that which was intended to be pure and life-giving is Ah. <coughs> ah, it's no longer life-giving. It's absolutely disgusting. One of the conditions of the heart that Jesus talks about is the occupied heart, worrying about our food and our drinking and our eating and our clothing and our mortgages and our businesses and our cars, winterizing our boats, uh, doing all the host of activities we have to do. The more we accumulate possessions, the more maintenance we have to do. We spend so much time on the cares and worries of ostensibly good things that you end up having no time left over for God, and you have no time to come closer to God. As we've been seeing in our evening programs, uh, the, the Prince of Prayer sermon two nights ago, we are so busy we have no time to pray to our, with our Heavenly Father any longer. And so the busy heart, the occupied heart, is filled with things that are not necessarily bad, but when they fill our heart to this extent, then no longer from my heart flows a stream of living water. Now, the second condition that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is, is, a, is, a, is a condition of the heart that it affects more and more people these days. God intends for us to have the streams of living water coming out of our heart. But the second condition that Jesus talks about is the lustful look. This is the eye, and this is sugar here, okay? This is the eye that is so focused on that which is sweet, sweet to the taste. And uh, the lustful look, as we've just read here, looking, looking upon a woman with lust, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Um, this condition of the heart, the lustful look, is the eye of the heart that is focused on self-gratification in all of its many forms. A life that is focused on pleasure, on sensation-seeking, on gratification, that always wanting to taste something sweet, a new sensation every day, ultimately, that which was intended to be life-giving by our Heavenly Father, again, 
even though the sugar isn't intrinsically bad in and of itself, when you mix it with water, it tastes absolutely disgusting, and it pollutes the taste of that otherwise life-giving water. Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. There in Matthew 15 and verse 19. So Jesus talks about, in Matthew's gospel, the occupied heart, being worried excessively about the daily realities of life, your physical possessions, and this can actually prevent your heart being a stream of living water. Jesus talks about the lustful heart, the heart that is focused on self-gratification. This is a heart that, you know, the sugar isn't intrinsically bad, but when you mix it with fresh water, it really tastes disgusting, and it, and it pollutes the water there. And then Jesus talks about a heart that is polluted by anger. Now, we, we find that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, 22. Uh, Jesus says there, I'm going to read these two verses, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you shall be liable to the hell of, to the hell of fire, and so forth. And so Jesus commands us here to seek reconciliation rather than allowing the pain of the past to stain us. And so, once again, we have some life-giving water, as Jesus intends our hearts to be, filled with life-giving water. But the reality is, is that sometimes bitter experiences come our way. <clears throat> and those bitter experiences tend to stain our heart that which was supposed to be clean and life-giving and a blessing, now, God, it smells disgusting. I'm not, what is it? It's lemon extract. All right, so would I drink this? Probably not, certainly not in large quantities. <coughs> ah, yes, I don't want to drink any of that, actually. The heart that is stained by bitterness and anger is not the heart that Jesus wants us to have as his followers today. We may have an occupied heart. We're excessively busy with the cares of this world. We may have a heart focused on self-gratification and lust. We may have a heart that is stained or tainted by bitterness or rage or anger from the past and a lack of forgiveness. All of these are common heart conditions that Jesus discusses within the Sermon on the Mount, but it is the pure in heart who will enter the presence of God, not so much those with busy hearts or lustful hearts or bitter hearts. And then the other kind of heart that Jesus discusses here is, is, the, um, is the, the frozen heart. Now, I did actually prepare a frozen bottle of water this morning or last night. As I was in the rush to come here this morning, I forgot it, you know, one of those things that got away. So I want you to imagine for a moment here that uh, this is not a glass of living water, but this is a glass of frozen water, the frozen heart, the cold heart might say, the embittered heart. And where does Jesus talk about this? Well, um, he, he talks about this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is the, the idealized heart. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the measure you make, you will be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? And oh, how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrites, 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The ideal look, the idealized heart, is often a frozen heart. It comes often with people who have a sense of their own self-sufficiency, how perfect I am, that everything is in order in my life, and because everything is in order in my life, I can now look down on everybody else. And it leads to a critical spirit, a backbiting spirit, a slanderous spirit, an attitude that tears people down because they don't meet your high expectations. And so Jesus talks in, in the Sermon on the Mount about busy, occupied hearts, that are so busy that they're no longer a source of living water to those around. Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about hearts that are consumed by um, lust and entertainment and gratification. Again, you would never give this to anybody else. It's, it's, it's a terrible drink, and it's not going to do us any good either. Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about hearts that are tainted by anger and bitterness. And once again, you would never dream of giving this to somebody else, as out of the believer's heart will not come a stream of tainted water. And then Jesus talks about the frozen heart, the, the frozen heart experience where you are so sure of your own goodness, you're like a frozen, a frozen glass of water, which is unpalatable to anybody. Nobody can drink a frozen glass of water. There are four heart experiences within the gospel, within the Sermon on the Mount, and yet Jesus wants us to have a heart from which flows a stream of living water. I would never dream of giving any of these options to you if you're a guest in my home, but I would give you this. But in order to give you this, Jesus is counseling us against lives that are so occupied with the daily business and chores that we are too busy to serve him. Jesus is counseling us against hearts that are so consumed by the desire for entertainment and and lust and uh, and gratification that is unpalatable to anybody else. Jesus is warning us against how can you be my disciple if your heart is tainted by anger or bitterness. Out of your mouth will never come a stream of living water. And Jesus is warning us against having an idealized self-image, thinking we are better than we really are, because that just leads to criticism of others and pointing out all their faults rather than lifting them up into the kingdom of God. No, it is Jesus' intent that the pure in heart, out of their hearts flows a stream of living water, This is the only glass you'd give to somebody else, is it not? And that is what Jesus is inviting us to within this particular beatitude. So what are the implications of this beatitude? Well, firstly, the human heart is deceitful above all else. All the ways of a man indeed do seem right unto him, yet the end thereof is destruction. When we reflect on the motives behind our actions, if we're honest with ourselves, we come to the conclusion that we really do not know our own motivation. There are motives we like to tell ourselves, these are, our, these are my motives. There are motives that we suspect are hidden in our hearts, but we don't want to vocalize them because we're kind of embarrassed about them. And there are motives that we're afraid of are in our hearts, um, but we really don't want to go down that pathway at all. The truth of the matter is, we do not know ourselves. We dress up our motives with window dressing. We can always dream of a good motive uh, for, for, for whatever we do but the human heart is deceitful above all else. And so we're invited to pray with the psalmist as Psalm 51 and Psalm 139, creating me, O God, a clean heart and put a new and a right spirit within me. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
So a recognition of our inability to know the exact condition of our heart, when we recognize we do not know whether our heart is in this condition or this condition or in this condition, is an invitation to us to open our hearts to God so that he can perform the divine heart surgery that all of us need, that we may be counted among the pure in heart. Secondly, we read in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, that nature reveals God and his character. We can see God all around us. We can see God in the blessings of our brothers and our sisters. We can see God in the natural revelation of the earth around us. If we are looking for God and we're not looking to criticize others, God will reveal himself to us and our hearts can be changed. And finally, do we actually want to see God? With the psalmist, the, the, the beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the question is, do we actually want to come into the presence of God? Some people have cherished sins. They know they have those cherished sins, and they say, well, I'm happy for Jesus to come, but just not at this stage of my life today, thank you very much. I'm enjoying my cherished sins. For others, their relationship with God is like a long-distance relationship, and all long-distance relationships have their ups and they have their downs. A lack of joy in our relationship today with God indicates a lack of anticipation of meeting him one day when Jesus comes again. And so in this beatitude, Jesus is inviting us to ponder our relationship with him. If we do not find joy with Jesus today, we're not going to look forward to his return. We're not going to work for his return. And his other disciples and their state of being will be of little concern to us. But if we are eagerly awaiting the moment when we indeed can see God face to face, then all of a sudden we want to work for his return. We're concerned about what's happening with our brothers and our sisters. We're concerned about what is happening in the world and reaching the lost so that they may too hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are three uh, uh, four questions here based on this beatitude I want to share with you. Is the, is, the is the psalmist describing me as I am or as I hope to be? What is the condition of my heart today? Jesus says, it is the pure in heart are going to see God. These other conditions need to be replaced by those who are pure in heart. Is Jesus describing me today, or is he pointing me to how he wants me to be? How can I be sure today that my motives are pure and God-fearing? Jesus inviting us to reflect and to slow down and to think about what our motives truly are. Uh, many years ago, I was in Azerbaijan. We had no electricity for months at a time. I go home every evening working refugee camps, and um, with no electricity, I would sit in my sleeping bag because it was cold. It was in the mountains. I'd have a candle there for light. And I went from being a human doing in England where I used to live to a human being in Azerbaijan because when you are forced to slow down, you have time to think. And Jesus is inviting us in this beatitude to slow down and to ask ourselves what truly is the motive of my heart. He's also, the next question is, Jesus, is seeing Jesus face to face more or less important than seeking social applause today? We touched on that yesterday, um, that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are seeking the approval of God rather than the approval of their community of faith. And finally, is there a promise or an invitation from God for me in this beatitude today? Blessed, said Jesus, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a beautiful promise. I invite you today to ask God to indeed give you that clean heart experience and to clean out the other heart experiences that Jesus discusses within the Sermon on the Mount. Which leads us to our final beatitude for today, 
And this is found in Matthew 5 and verse 9, where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, interestingly, this is the only place in the entire Bible where we find the word peacemaker. Uh, just just a, a couple of days ago, we saw that the merciful, the only place in the Bible where we have the word merciful is found in the Beatitudes. And the only time in the entire scripture where you find the word peacemaker is found here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Now, we today often associate peace with an end of hostilities, such as the armistice, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month that ended World War I. Or we, we talk about the Treaty of Versailles. We associate peace with the absence of war or the cessation of hostilities. Now, ceasefires and surrenders are important preludes to peace, but scripturally, they do not constitute biblical peace. Peace in the Bible is not so much the absence of war, but the presence of shalom. It is the finest of loving relationships with, between individuals, within families, within communities, and across, nations, and across nations that seeks for the human flourishing in all of its variety and diversity. Peace, peace includes good health, and the peace that Jesus is discussing here, as he discusses later in this gospel, is the peace of God. It is a force of good for mutual trust and deep inner security. Now, Jesus lived in the time of the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And the Pax Romana um, arose from the Romans' self-belief that they had the superior system of governance, and it was their unique mission, their historical mission, to impose their laws and their civilization on the rest of the world. In practice, the arrival of the Pax Romana in an unconquered territory was accompanied by mass rape, deportations, selling into slavery, the complete destruction of towns and homes and communities, and the mass deportation of the survivors. When Rome, was, when Rome conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, and they took over a million people out of Jerusalem, they sold them as slaves in the slave markets of, of, of uh, Egypt. They were selling them by the 30, by batches of 30, because there were so many slaves they needed to get rid of. The arrival of the Roman emperor, emperor into newly conquered territory was announced by his public heralds with the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get the word evangel from, or good news. So while the Pax Romana was good news to the Romans themselves, it was terrifying news to the conquered. And the first disciples of Jesus were called to pronounce the Evangelion, the good news. But the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be compared with the good news of the Pax Romana or the Pax Britannica or the Pax Americana. For the pronouncement of the good news of Jesus Christ includes the announcement of the peace of God to fall upon all and any who will receive it. Jesus says in Matthew 10, if you want to turn there for a moment, Matthew 10, verses 12 through 13, discussing this peace of God. Jesus says there, Matthew 10, verse 12, as he sends out the, the, the 12, he says, as you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to it. This peace of God that Jesus commands his disciples to bring to communities involves peace with God, peace with our neighbor, and peace with ourselves. But Jesus knows only too well that peace does not easily happen among disciples. I had a friend once who was a pastor, and he became an accountant, and I asked him, why did you make the transition from pastoral ministry to the treasury? He said, Conrad, he said, it's easier to reconcile figures than people. And there is some truth to that. It is harder to reconcile people than it is to reconcile figures. You can have a balancing item in a balance sheet, but you can't have that among individuals. But to be like Christ means we are to be peacemakers. And Jesus taught us in Matthew 18 what it means 
to live as peacemakers within the community. To, um, if, if any of you put a stumbling block between one of these little ones who believe in me, says Jesus in verse 6, it is better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. And the word for stumbling block in Greek is scandalon. That's where we get the word a scandal from. A scandal is a cause of stumbling. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, says Jesus, but woe to the one by whom the cause of the stumbling block comes. Followers of Jesus, therefore, are to be aware of causes of stumbling in our own lives. And Jesus is inviting us to voluntarily hold back from that which might cause a younger disciple to have a crisis of faith. In our Western world, we, we, we emphasize the fact that I'm free to do what I want, and you're just going to have to like it or lump it, but I'm free to do what I want. And Jesus is teaching that to be a peacemaker means that if I know that I'm doing X, but X is going to be a cause of stumbling for my sister Y over here, Jesus is, is a teaching me to hold back from X because I don't want to be an unnecessary cause of stumbling for my sister over there. Jesus is inviting us to live our lives with reference to how our lives are perceived by those around us so that we are deliberately and intentionally removing causes for stumbling uh, from those in the community of faith. Uh, even lawyers understand this. If, if, you have, if you're a defendant in a criminal trial and, and you have, you know, um, your body is covered with tattoos, your lawyer will probably advise you that if, if you're being, you know, um, charged with, you know, um, aggravated assault or murder or attempted robbery, that it's better to wear a nice suit, preferably a single-tone suit, black or blue suit, with a single-tone shirt and a single-tone tie. Why? Because you're giving the jury as few reasons as possible to dislike you. And if you have love and hate tattooed across your, fit, your, your, your knuckles, keep your hands in your lap or behind your back at all times. Even lawyers understand that it's in your own interests not to unnecessarily be a cause of stumbling for somebody else. And Jesus in Matthew 18, talking about what it means to be a peacemaker, he, he commands us uh, that woe to those by whom the cause of stumbling comes. If there is something in my life or in your life that you know is a cause of stumbling for somebody else, don't do it. It may be your Christian liberty to do it. It may be lawful for you to do it, says Paul, but it's not beneficial for the body of Christ. So we have to live our lives with reference to how we impact those around us. Peace in the Gospel of Matthew is to be actively worked for. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, these are familiar verses that if somebody sins against you, go to them privately, not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Go to them privately and, and explain the matter to them. And, and if that doesn't work, and if the appeal to the conscience doesn't work, then take two or three witnesses, again, privately, not on Facebook, not on Twitter, not in the, the church parking lot, and you discuss the matter with them there. And if this does not work, uh, then you bring it the matter to the, the whole church. You're seeking for a resolution uh, that there may peace, maybe peace in interpersonal relationships, and there may be community harmony. And in bringing the matter before the entire church family, both sides are agreeing to live with and to honor the decision of the entire church family. What are the implications of this beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Firstly, Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. Uh, many years ago, well, actually it was in 2015, it wasn't that long ago, I was in northern Iraq, I was in an airport, uh, ISIS were just half an hour's drive away, and I was sitting in a local transit hub, and uh, an army officer came up to me, an Iraqi army officer, he was a big burly guy, he was dressed in combat gear, there was a lot of soldiers on the streets, they were very nervous, 
Um, I was a prime target for ISIS being a Westerner in that part of the world. And he came up to me and he sat next to me and I thought, what's he going to say? And he said, why are you here? Why why did you come to our country in the midst of ISIS and the fighting? And so what do you say in those circumstances? I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor and I'm a missionary. And he said, that's interesting, he says, tell me about Jesus. And what did I explain about Jesus? The first thing I said about Jesus is that, do you know one of the titles of Jesus is he is the Prince of Peace. And we spoke for about an hour about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And in a world that is racked by conflict, the, the, the notion of following Jesus as the Prince of Peace is a beautiful concept. In the time of the disciples, Jesus made it plain that those homes or communities that rejected him would be rejecting the peace of God. And in rejecting the peace of God, they would find them subject to whatever human form of domination would be imposed upon them. And all forms of human peace, whether it be the Pax Romana or the Pax Britannica or the Pax Americana, are ultimately based on imbalance of power and some people enforcing their position in the world over somebody else. At a broader level, we may understand the conflicts between the Arabs and the Jews in the Middle East but as arising from the fact that both of them, Judaism and Islam, have rejected Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And if both sides have rejected the Prince of Peace, it is no wonder that there is inevitable conflict. In our own families, the implication that if we reject the rule of the Prince of Peace, if at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we do not build our lives and our homes and our families and our marriages on the teachings of Jesus, if we do not want the Prince of Peace to be preeminent in our lives, then why are we surprised when conflict enters our marriages and enters our homes and enters our congregations? Second, the second implication, our time is moving on here, is that there's an African proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass is trampled. It's a great proverb, yes? When the elephants fight, the grass is trampled. And sometimes in congregations, you have two elders like bull elephants. They bear the battle scars from years of bruising meetings on the board meeting and church business meetings, and they're going to duke it out over this, this, this issue or that issue. And the problem is, is that because they're old bull elephants, they're not going to retire from the fight, but the grass gets trampled all around. When leaders fight in the church, when spiritual leaders choose not to work and sacrifice for peace, but they want their way or or no way at all, it is the young in faith who are discouraged. The grass is trampled. The children, the teenagers, they see this conflict and they say, they don't say, I agree with this bull elephant or that bull elephant. They say, I want nothing to do with the entire zoo and I'm leaving. When elephants fight, the grass is trampled. If you're watching this online, I want you to reflect on this. Whatever is happening in your church, in your family, in your community of faith, do not fight over matters that are of, of really of no consequence. When Jesus comes again, this church will be burnt to the ground. It matters not the color of the carpet. When Jesus comes again, the church manual will be burnt with everything else. It doesn't matter what's in section 6, paragraph 3, subsection 3a. It really does not matter at the end of the day. We should not be fighting about things that divide us, but we should be fighting for salvation to come to those who are lost today. And Jesus in this chapter pronounces eternal judgment upon leaders who fight in a way that disillusions those who are young in their faith. It is a cautionary note that those in position are not authorized to fight without regard for the impact on teenagers and children in our churches today. And finally, peacemaking involves self-sacrifice. And why do I say that? Because turn in your Bibles to our final text, to Ephesians chapter 2, 
and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, sorry, and verse 14. And Paul wrote about Jesus Christ bringing peace between Jews and Gentiles. And he says there in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, it says, For he, that is Jesus, is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. Our peace with God comes through the self-sacrifice of Jesus, who was entirely innocent. He was not the guilty party. He was not to blame for the breakdown in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Yet our striving for peace today generally involves requiring somebody else to apologize, somebody else to admit that they were at fault, somebody else to say that they were sorry, somebody else to lose face while, while I come out smelling of roses. When we make peace today, we want everybody to know that I was in the right and I'm entirely vindicated and you were entirely in the wrong and you're going to repent in sackcloth and ashes before the brothers and the sisters. But that is not how Jesus made peace. To follow Jesus in peacemaking, to be a peacemaker as was Jesus, involves a willingness on my part to be personally hurt or personally uh, compromised or humbled in order that the community as a whole might experience the peace of God. Jesus sacrificed himself that we might have peace with God. And if we are to follow Jesus in his way of peacemaking, we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves in order that there might be peace within the wider community. If everybody is seeking for their way to be followed, there will never be peace. If everyone is willing to make peace and to follow in the path of Jesus in making peace, then finally the peace of God will flourish in our homes, in our churches, in our congregations, within our communities, and within our nations. Blessed, said Jesus, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And close with a, some questions for personal reflection. What are the personal characteristics of someone who is at peace with himself or with herself? Describe what the presence of God might look like in your life, in your home, in your congregation, or in your community. If you're involved in a conflict right now, what personal sacrifice are you willing to make in order to be known as a peacemaker and as a child of God? Is there a promise for you in this beatitude? Is there an invitation for you in this beatitude? If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today, I would appeal to you, do not quench the words of the Holy Spirit, but heed the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker, and he's inviting us today to follow in his footsteps, to be men and women of peace, that people may know that the Prince of Peace is coming soon. May this be our experience for the glory of God and for the glory of his kingdom. Amen. I'd like to invite you as we close this segment here to bow your heads wherever you may be, and we will close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's easy to go to war where it takes courage to make peace. Oh, Father, I ask that you change the broken tendencies of our hearts, that you take away these occupied hearts, these busy hearts, these frozen hearts, these lustful hearts. I ask that you replace them with hearts that are filled with the living water of your Spirit, that we indeed might be peacemakers in our homes and in our communities. Oh, Father, we ask today that your peace may reign supreme in our hearts, in our homes, around our hearts, and in our community. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.